and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Keep going. No, keep going. For ladies and gents. Oh, man, I forgot our tagline already. (laughs) No, it's because you threw... It's because you used one word, you threw it off. Yep. (laughs) I'm going to say that part again. A trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. (laughs) Hey, Jewel. Hi. Hi. It is. In the battle of articles, (laughs) as one of our astute (laughs) listeners pointed out, the... Our logo says a trivia podcast, <laughs> which you made, which you constructed with your two hands and a computer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. It's okay. I was, trying to, I was trying to like get us as like the, yeah, the podcast. Trivia podcast for yeah, ladies that's true. And gents, but well, hey. you know, we don't have any, we don't have any financial support from a corporation yet. So we're not the <laughs> trivia podcast for ladies and gents who live cool trivia. But anyway. It is, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but it is 11 degrees outside, 11 whole <laughs> degrees, and I have lost the will to live. <laughs> yeah, and it's early for that, too. Yeah, it is I early. Mean, it's bad. I was hoping we'd coast through to February. We were talking about it at work. You know, you talk about weather when you first come in, like, ooh, yeah. it's cold out there. Like, oh, man, it's raining like cats and dogs or whatever. We're like, you know what? It's been pretty good winter. Like, it hasn't been too bad. We haven't had a lot of snow. And then all of a sudden, it dumped a ton <laughs> of snow. And then it froze. And then everything froze. And everything froze. So um, that's where we're at, everybody. Oh, and that's 11 degrees Fahrenheit, by the way. Yes. We are not doing Celsius on this. I don't even know what it could be Celsius. Do you remember the... To get your (laughs) Celsius. Do you remember your song? It's It's good. It's It's good. We'll listen to it again. Can't do that mental math right now. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's too cold to do mental math. So, um, back by popular demand, everybody. It's negative nine degrees. It is negative nine degrees Celsius. That's not enough degrees to support life in any real way. Of degrees, exactly. Um, So, uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, Um, my topic today is. uh, We're gonna go get some ginkgo biloba. I know it's just it's been it's so cold and dark, and I just I had a very quiet day at work. I ate a whole thing of french fries from the restaurant and they were overdone you know like they're real crispy Mm -hmm. which is usually pretty good but they were too oily and my my friend courtney came in she was like all right i'm leaving and i was like literally like three french fries in my mouth and half of my hand kind of thing and i was like (laughs) okay bye have a good weekend so i've been alone all day so i'm gonna tell you every thought that ever entered my head anyway my topic today is what are you some kind of Rembrandt part three so I was going to do three artists today (laughs) but I ran out of space so my last part part four is going to be Picasso and then I will leave your ears with that information i don't think i'll continue the art one not for a while because i need to mix it up you know yeah just because i work in an art museum doesn't mean that i have i don't have other interests so so okay we're gonna do paul Cezanne to begin and there are these are two french artists so i have a lot of of terrible pronunciations ahead um i'm sorry what good pronunciations because i wrote them phonetically in my paper. Anyway, <clears throat> Paul Cezanne, born January 19th, 1839. His birthday's coming up. Uh, he was an extremely influential artist who is said to have bridged the late 19th century impressionism to the early 20th century hot newness, cubism. More on that later. Uh, both Matisse and Picasso are said to have remarked that he is the father to us all, which is nice. Uh, born in Aix-en-Provence to a banking father and a, quote, vivacious and romantic but quick-to-take-offense mother. No <laughs> career was listed for that. Uh, Cezanne, at 22, left for Paris in order to further his artistic pursuits, encouraged by his very good friend, Emile Zola. His dad wasn't into it and objected, and later they, but later they reconciled, and his dad basically financially supported him from then on. All right. So All he right. was a rich guy. He wasn't poor like Van Gogh was. Mm-hmm. He ate well. Um so he's got that Yay. going for him. 
Uh, in Paris, Cezanne met the Impressionist Camille Pissarro, and initially the friendship formed in the mid-1860s between Pissarro and Cezanne was that of master and disciple, in which Pissarro exerted a formative influence on the younger artist. Over the course of the following decade, their landscape painting excursions together in Louvre-Saint-Anne and Pontoise led to a collaborative working relationship between eagles. She is laughing at me because I'm pronouncing it so well. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> In 1863, Napoleon III created by decree the Salon des Refusés, at which painting rejected for display at the uh, Salon of the Académie des Beaux-Arts were to be displayed. Is that how I say it? Yeah, Beaux-Arts. 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 It's supposed to be softer than how I'm doing it? Okay. I'll try. <laughs> it's like your cartoon character. <laughs> it's because all the French that I've ever heard are from cartoon characters. Pepe Le Pew is my French inspiration. Uh, the artists of the refused works included the young Impressionists who were considered revolutionary. Uh, Cezanne was influenced by their style, but his social relations with them were inept. He seemed rude, shy, angry, and given to depression. Sounds familiar. It's like a real, those are some real artist qualities from it's the 19th century. Some real artist qualities, which is interesting because if I would imagine if you're someone who is deeply creative, that you would have a, a joy, a joie, if you will. A joie, a joie, de, joie vivre. de vivre. Um Again, I think I've hit that end <laughs> syllable a little too hard. I apologize. <laughs> but uh, alas, Cezanne did not have that joie. Uh, his works of this period are characterized by dark colors and the heavy use of black. So in uh, 1866 and 67, inspired by the example of Courbet, Cezanne painted a series of paintings with a palette knife. He later called these works mostly portraits, Un Couillard, which uh, apparently at the time was a coarse word for ostentatious virility. But I think it means coward. Ostentatious virility. Yeah. I'm just going to let that lie. You can imagine what I, I mean. We're going to talk about some ostentatious virility a little bit later. But <laughs> writer and curator Lawrence Gowing had written that Cezanne's palette knife phase, quote, was not only the invention of modern expressionism, although it was incidentally that, the idea of art as an emotional ejaculation made its first appearance at this moment. I know. There's a there's a lot of testosterone happening. There is, isn't and there? It's just, you know, artists. Everything's a dick, right? That's the first thing we learn in art history. Yeah, <laughs> day one, day one. They're like, "Hey, everybody, we're gonna get started." Lesson number one: Everything's a dick. Thank you. You are excused. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> um, and you know, like uh, architects, all the. T- you know, all the towers and monuments are so tall, you know, and thin and phallic. Um, I mean, we're not going to get into it, but they are. Uh, so later works of the dark period included several erotic or violent subjects, such as women dressing, the rape, and the murder, which depicts a man stabbing a woman who is held down by his female accomplice. Don't worry, this ends quickly. I mean, the, the period ends quickly. And I hope that wasn't painted from life. Oh, uh, after the start of the Franco-Prussian War in July 1870, Cezanne and his mistress, Marie Hortense Fiquet, left Paris for Lestac near Marseille, where he changed themes to predominantly landscapes. And so right. he did landscapes basically that for the rest of his life. Thank God. Uh, he was declared a draft dodger in January 1871, but the war ended the next month in February, and the couple moved back to Paris in the summer of 1871. After the birth of their son, Paul, in January 1872 in Paris, they moved to Ouvert in the Val d'Oise near Paris. Uh, Cezanne's mother was kept a party to family events, but his father was not informed of Hortense for fear of risking his wrath. Um, the artist received from his father a monthly allowance of 100 francs, in leaving Hortense in the Marseille region, Cezanne moved between Paris and Provence, exhibiting in the first and third Impressionist shows, which were 1874 and 1877. Uh, but Cezanne exhibited paintings attracted hilarity, outrage, and sarcasm. Uh, reviewer Louis Leroy said of Cezanne's portrait of friend Victor Choquet, quote, this peculiar looking head, the color of an old boot, might give a pregnant woman a shock and cause yellow fever in the fruit of her womb before its entry into the world. What a strange description. Yeah. Like, she's going to look at it, become so surprised that yellow fever, she's going to cause yellow fever this in is, her fetus. This is some witch trials. It is some witch trial nonsense. stuff. I guess when I 
think of Suzanne, I'm thinking of bowls of fruit on a table. So, yes, and you should think of bowls of fruit on a table. Okay. Because he did a lot of still lifes and he did a lot of landscapes. Okay. In like pretty colors. Oh, in lovely colors. But so you're saying, you're talking about the black paint. You're talking about these terrible scenes. And I'm like, yes. that's not the Suzanne I know. No. And it's not this, honestly, it's not the Suzanne I know, Julia. And I think he moved on from it. And I think he became a better person okay. because of it. All right. And I think being a young painter, he really wanted to shock people. Okay. And, but in fact, when he started working in his in his oeuvre, then he started shocking people, which is weird. So he's kind of like today's equivalent of a teen on YouTube. Yes. Julia, that is the best. <laughs> that is the best. Like... He's going to do the Tide Pod Challenge. Yes. He's doing the Tide Pod Challenge. He's like, look at me. I'm going to eat it. It's delicious. And everyone's like, well, I guess I'll take a look at this. I want to see if it's actually delicious so I don't have to eat the Tide Pod. And the pregnant women watching get yellow fever into the fruit of their looms. Yes. Wounds? Looms. Wounds? (laughs) Wounds. Sure. Yellow fever in their fruit of the looms. I think we're getting away from the metaphor a little bit. Uh, (laughs) So... Yes, and we'll talk about his his established style in a bit. Um, but yeah, Cezanne in the great in like in all of time and space, Cezanne at, at his moment was very shocking. Now he's like a wonderful classical artist okay. that even the most traditional of artists and art lovers today would consider a master. Great, um, but that wasn't the case then. So, in the early 1880s, the Cezanne family stabilized their residence in Provence, where they remained, except for brief sojourns abroad from then on. Uh, the move reflects a new independence from the Paris-centered Impressionists and a marked preference for the South, Cezanne's native soil. Uh, the year 1886 was a turning point for the family. Cezanne married Hortense, and in that year, uh, Cezanne's father died, leaving him the estate purchased in 1859. And Are you say... Sorry. No, go ahead. Are you saying Hortense, like... Like his wife's name or something? Yes, his wife's name is Hortense. Okay, because I didn't, I had no idea what you were talking about. Oh, I'm sorry. Her name is Marie Hortense Fique. Sorry, so maybe like, I got a little too Orte- into the French. If you were saying like stuff about Hortense, and I'm like, I don't know if that's a place. I don't know. <laughs> sorry. Yes, Hortense. He married Hortense. Okay, so she was a secret from his family. From for a his while. father. Yes. See, I thought you were saying like his house was a secret from his father. <laughs> he built this beautiful manor called Hortense, and his dad was not allowed to know. No, he Hortense was his mistress first. Okay. Then they had a baby, and then he finally married her when he was forty-seven. Wow. In, yeah. Mm, you know, in eighteen fifty-nine. Yeah. I I don't know if he was like waiting for his dad to die. That may have been it. Oh gosh. Um. So I don't know, but. <laughs> So by 1888, the family was in the former manor, which is the Jean de Buffon, a substantial house and grounds without buildings, which afforded a newfound comfort. Uh, Cezanne's idyllic period at Jean de Buffon <laughs> was temporary. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Serious art. <clears throat> From 1890 until his death, he was beset by troubling events and he withdrew further into his painting, ah, geez. spending long periods as a virtual recluse. His paintings became well-known and sought after, and he was the object of respect from a new generation of paintings, however. Uh, painters. Uh, the problems began with the onset of diabetes in 1890, destabilizing his personality to the point where relationships with others were again strained. So I don't huh. know if he got the bad sugar, as my grandma likes to say. <laughs> and somehow that destabilized his personality. Um, I think there was other things going on. Hmm. But him being sick, I think, sent him into further depression. Okay. So in 1897, his mother died, an upsetting event, but one which made reconciliation with his wife possible. He and Hortense, the human person, uh, had an off and on relationship because he was so stormy, one would say. I mean, in all likelihood, he was probably on some drugs, too. Oh, I mean, honestly, late 19th century France? Mm, Yeah, I think so. Have some opium. Yeah. Laudanum. Uh lithium lithium yeah lots of wormwood wormwood absinthe what here you go yeah drink it down so um he sold his house and he rented a place uh where he built a studio so he could like live alone so his relationship with his wife continued to be stormy he needed a place to be by himself and in 1901 he bought some land along the chemin de love in isolated road on some high ground at Aix and commissioned a studio to be built there now open to the public. So you can go there now hmm. and like walk around his studio. 
Um, he moved there in 1903, and meanwhile in 1902, he had drafted a will excluding his wife from his estate and leaving everything to his son. Yep. The relationship was apparently off again. She is said to have burned the mementos of his mother. Oh, boy. Yeah. So it's bad. It's a good way to get yourself. <laughs> yeah. Get Banned. yourself out yeah. of the will permanently. You know, she was like, you know what? I'm out of the will anyway. So bye, mom. Bye. Never liked your mother anyway. Uh, one day, Cezanne was caught in a storm while painting in a field. After working for two hours, he decided to go home. But on the way, he collapsed. He was taken home by a passing driver, and his old housekeeper rubbed his arms and legs to restore the circulation, and as a result, he regained consciousness. On the following day, he intended to continue working, but later on, he fainted. The model with whom he was working called for help, and he was put to bed, and he never left it. He died a few days later on October 22, 1906, of pneumonia, and was buried at the St. Pierre Cemetery in his hometown of Aix and Provence. Aix and Provence. Um, so, let's talk about a style. Because his life is typical of an artist. Mm -hmm. Back and forth with women. Grumpy pants. Magoo. Good painter. (laughs) He did some rapey stuff at some point, which is weird. But um, essentially the reason why he is like the father of all of the modernists is because he was interested in the simplification of naturally occurring forms. So um, he wanted to simplify, like distill everything down to their geometric shapes only. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so he said he wanted to treat nature by the cylinder, the sphere and the cone. So a tree trunk might be conceived of as a cylinder, an apple or an orange, a sphere, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So additionally, Cezanne's desire to capture the truth of perception led him to explore binocular vision graphically, rendering slightly different yet simultaneous visual perceptions of the same phenomena to provide the viewer with an aesthetic experience of depth, different from those earlier ideals of perspective, in particular, single point perspective. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? So um, when you are looking at something in real life, you have two eyeballs and they are in different parts of your head. I don't know if you knew that. So, <laughs> so this is why we can see in 3D because both eyeballs um, and, you know, like the 3D viewfinder things. Stereo. The stereoscopes, right? The stere- stereo viewer. Yeah, stereo viewer. Stereo viewer. Great. It's like two slightly different images of the same image. And so when you look at them with both of your eyes, it looks like it's three-dimensional because both eyes are communicating together and making it a three-dimensional object. Cezanne was like obsessed with this perception where he was like, how can I make my paintings look like you're looking out of a window Mm -hmm. where you can see the entire like wholeness of that object and not necessarily make it seem realistic like it's a photo or like it's real life, but that if he can distill something down to a sphere, if he can make an orange just a sphere, then you, by him pa- painting it, can see the entirety of the sphere, like okay. all of it in space. So that's what he was obsessed with. And it's impossible, well, virtually impossible to do, but he was super into it. And so his interest in new ways of modeling space and volume derived from the stereoscopy obsession of his era. So like the the stereo viewer, that was yeah. definitely like his thing. And it was definitely a thing that was kind of in the, the zeitgeist at the time. So Cezanne's innovations have prompted critics to suggest such varied explanations as sick retinas, pure vision, and the influence of the steam railway. And I was like, what? Huh. So they're thinking he may have had some issues with his eyeballs that made him like want to paint that way or like express what he was seeing. And, but also the influence of the steam railway, which is an interesting theory that um, the idea of landscapes seen through the window of a moving train, you know how your eye can like focus on one thing and follow, Mm -hmm. follow it as they, as you go by, he wanted to kind of capture that way of seeing in a painting. Hmm. Yeah. Which is extremely hard to do. So he (laughs) painted a lot of stuff. So Cezanne's stylistic approaches and beliefs regarding how to paint were analyzed and written about by the French philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty. In his 1945 essay entitled Cezanne's Doubt, Merleau-Ponty discussed how Cezanne gave up classical artistic elements such as pictorial arrangements, single view perspectives, and outlines that enclosed color in an attempt to get a lived perspective. So again, he didn't want to just have like a cartoon outline of something and have it be yeah. two-dimensional. He wanted to feel three-dimensional. So he wanted to capture all the complexities that an eye observes. He wanted to see and sense the objects he was painting rather than think about them. Ultimately, he wanted to get to the point where sight was also touch. 
and he would take hours sometimes to put down a single stroke because each stroke needed to contain, quote, the air, the light, the object, the composition, the character, the outline, and the style. Sounds exhausting. It is exhausting. No wonder he was so grumpy all the time. (laughs) He was like, I got to put this down and it's got to be perfect. So a still life might have taken Cezanne 100 working sessions while a portrait took him around 150 sessions. That's insane. Uh, Cezanne believed that while he was painting, he was capturing a moment of time that once passed could not come back. The atmosphere surrounding what he was painting was part of the sensational reality he was painting. I mean, the the fruit in those bowls would have rotted by then. I know, exactly. No wonder it didn't look that good. He needed to sell his big mansion. To, <laughs> yes, exactly. For all that and produce money. I know. He's just bushels of oranges all over his house, rotting <laughs> bees and flies everywhere. It's terrible. No wonder he died of pneumonia. Um, so some of his famous paintings. Um, you know him for Mont Victoire, seen from Bellevue, uh, which is at the Barnes Foundation. Uh, Rideau, uh, Cruchon and Compotier. Uh, which was sold in 1999 for $84.6 million in today's money. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, the Card Players, uh, there's five paintings in that series that were made between 1890 and 95, and one of those was sold to the royal family of Qatar for around $300 million, which at the time was the highest amount paid for a painting until 2017, where Da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi was sold to um, basically the like arts and culture center of Abu Dhabi for 450 million. Uh, And the bathers is another one of his more famous ones, which is at the Philadelphia museum of art. I know it's crazy. Bowls of fruit, lots of bowls of fruit. So (laughs) now we get to a more interesting guy in general, uh, Henri Emile Benoit Matisse. He was born December 31st, 1869. He was the oldest son of a prosperous grain merchant in Les Catu Cambrésis. (laughs) <laughs> Just, I want to see your pronunciation. I want to see your pronunciation. Les Catu Cambrésis. So I sound like I sound like Audrey Tateau right now. You don't understand. I am like, yeah. Look, see, there it is, right there. You see it. Le Catu Cambrésis. That's what I said. Didn't I say it like that? Le Catu Cambrésis. Uh, anyway, Matisse. He first started to paint in 1889 after his mother brought him art supplies during a period of convalescence following attack of appendicitis. Ugh. You know about that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, exactly. That's why I said it. Um, he said he discovered a kind of paradise, as he later described it, and decided to become an artist, deeply disappointing his father. There's uh. a lot of French fathers just in the 19th just century. Just around, like, just like, Bon Dieu. <sighs> um... So in 1891, he returned to Paris to study art at the Académie Julien and became a student of William Adolphe Bougereau and Gustave Moreau. Uh, initially, he painted still lifes and landscapes in a traditional style at which he achieved reasonable proficiency. So he, he would have been just another French artist if he had not. After he was given a Van Gogh drawing by a friend in 1896, his style changed completely and he abandoned his earth colored palettes for brighter colors. Okay. So with the model Caroline Joblau, he had a daughter, Marguerite, born in 1894. And in 1898, he married Amélie Noélie Perrier. The two raised Marguerite together and had two sons, Jean, born in 1899, and Pierre, born in 1900. Marguerite and Amélie often served as models for Matisse, so his daughter and his now wife. Okay. So in 1898, on the advice of Camille Pissarro, who is everywhere. 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 He was friends with everybody. He was a good time guy. Everyone wanted to paint with him. Everybody wanted to learn from him. Pissarro was like lots of streets of Paris. Yes. Paintings, right? He loved Paris and he liked just like, and he was an early, he was a post-impressionist. He kind of like was the, I don't know if he was the father of like, because it was Cezanne who was the father of all of them. Mm -hmm. But I think his work kind of sprang from a lot of different other people. So um, Matisse went to London to study the paintings of JMW Turner and then went on a trip to Corsica. Matisse immersed himself in the work of others and went into debt from buying work from painters he admired. Uh, The work he hung and displayed in his home include a plaster bust by Rodin, a painting by Gauguin, a drawing by Van Gogh, and Cezanne's Three Bathers. In Cezanne's sense of pictorial structure and color, Matisse found his main inspiration. So he was like, Cezanne is the tits. Uh, The other thing about Matisse is that he was not only a painter, but he was also a sculptor. So he did a lot of uh, 
paintings and then he would do a sculpture of the painting. Okay. Um, to kind of, again, because Cezanne was all about three-dimensionality, Matisse was like, well, I got a shortcut. I can just <laughs> sculpt it. And then there it is in three dimensions. So let's talk about the fauves. So <clears throat> fauvism as a style began around 1900 and continued beyond 1910. Um, the movement as such lasted only a few years. It only lasted from 1904 to 1908 or ni- 1906, 1908. Um, and only had three exhibitions of like the fauves as they were known. So the leaders of the movement were Matisse and André Deram. And Matisse's first solo exhibition was at Amboise Voyard's gallery in 1904 without much success. Can you tell when I have not put the pronunciation guide? Amboise. So his fondness for bright and expressive color became more pronounced after he spent the summer of 1904 painting in Saint-Tropez with the neo-impressionist Signac and Henri-Edmond Cross. And that year he painted the most important of his works in the neo-impressionist style called Luke's Calm et Vilopte, luxury, calm, and pleasure. And it is a very beautiful piece. It has some, um, it's like a lot of like very colorful nude bathers and they're like hanging out on the shore and they're loving life. Some of them are stretching and some of them are talking and they're all in like really bright colors. There's a lot of pink and blue. There's like a little ship. Do they look like people? Uh, you can identify them as nude people. Okay. Um, but only because they have like, you know, two arms, two legs, a head. And a in the torso. way that our lizard brain would identify them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of influence of pointillism again. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of like streaks of color and it's very bright colored. It's really beautiful. I'll post a picture of it. Um, so that was like, people were like, ooh, this is very colorful. I love this stuff. So Matisse and a group of artists now known as the Fobs exhibited together in a room at the Salon des Optom in 1905. Uh, the paintings expressed emotion with wild, often dissonant colors without regard for the subject's natural colors, which pissed a lot of people off. People were like, skin isn't green. Ah! <laughs> like they were so mad. So Matisse showed open window and woman with the hat, which is a very important piece at the salon. Critic Louis Vossels commented on a lone sculpture surrounded by an orgy of pure tones as Donatello chez la Favre, or Donatello among the wild beasts. So there was the sculpture of Donatello, like by Donatello. And then there were all these fauve paintings around. And he was like, this is OMG. Donatello being like accosted mm-hmm. by color. Um, and so they, they enjoyed it. They were like, okay, we're the fauves. So his comment was printed on October 17th, 1905. Um, and then it was just passed into popular usage. Like everyone was like, oh, the fauves, the fauves in like three years or whatever. Um, the ex- exhibition garnered harsh criticism. Quote, a pot of paint has been flung in the face of the public, said the critic Camille Mauclair, but also some favorable attention. When the painting that was singled out for special condemnation, Matisse's Women with a Hat, it was bought by Gertrude and Leo Stein, the embattled artist's morale improved considerably after this. Heck yeah. Yeah. Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein and her brother and her sister-in-law and her other brother. And probably her lover. And oh, yeah, and Alice B. Toklas was there too somewhere. Um, but they bought a lot of Matisse's work. And mm-hmm. he was also part of their like Saturday night salon mm-hmm. at the at Gertrude Stein's, you know, Paris apartment. She would like put out some cheese and crackers and like have some port. And then people would come by because she had a beautiful art collection. Mm-hmm. And they would be like, ooh, let's look at Gertrude's art collection. And they were like, let's smoke some hash and let's like talk about art and let's talk about ideas and our writing and stuff. And so that became kind of the thing. And because they loved Matisse's work and because they collected it to such a, like a large and varying degree, he was kind of in the inner circle for mm-hmm. the Steins. Um, so the decline of the movement uh, after 1906, the Fauves, did not affect the career of Matisse and many of his finest works were created between 1906 and 1917 um, when he was an active part of the great gathering of artistic p- talent in Montparnasse, even though he did not quite fit in uh, he had a conservative appearance and a strict bourgeois working habit. So he was certainly not like a bohemian, like, let's get drunk. He was like, no, tomorrow I'm working from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. I'm going to break for dinner, and then I'm going to do two more hours of work, and then I'm going to stop by Gertrude's house. So he continued to absorb new influences and travel a lot. He went to Algeria in 1906. He studied African art and primitivism. And after viewing a large exhibition of Islamic art in Munich in 1910, he spent two months in Spain studying Moorish art. Um, He visited Morocco in 1912 and again in 1913. And while painting in Tangier, he made several changes to his work, including his use of black as a color, which people were like, (laughs) black, get out. 
So the effect on Matisse's art was a new boldness in the use of intense, unmodulated color. So again, like this influence of Van Gogh, where it was color straight from the tube, mm-hmm. where you can get like that pure beauty. Um, so one of them that's very important and very colorful is L'Atelier Rouge, which is the red studio. And that's another um, very important, recognizable work of Matisse that I will post. Um, Matisse's work of the time also encountered vehement criticism, and it was difficult for him to provide for his family. His painting, Blue Nude, in 1907, was burned in effigy at the Armory Show in Chicago in 1913. Burned? Burned in effigy. So, let's talk about Blue Nude. Because Blue Nude, can I tell you? I distinctly remember being in college, art history majors. The We were doing, like, a um, uh, modernist class, and Blue Nude came up on the the slideshow and everyone was like <gasps> because was it just cookie monster what was it just cookie monster it was not cookie monster first of all cookie monster is not nude <laughs> he, he does not fur. have any clothes on he doesn't have any clothes on but you cannot see his genitalia so i would make the argument that his fur is clothes i'm gonna put up a twitter poll <laughs> <laughs> and i'm gonna tag Cookie Monster, because here's the thing. I follow him, mm-hmm. and I have retweeted him several times as Miss Infopod. I hope that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that I've retweeted uh, Cookie Monster. <laughs> anyway, so Matisse painted this nude. It's a blue nude in 1907 when a sculpture he was working on shattered. He was like, ah, oh, poo. I might as well paint it because I have it in my brain, mm-hmm. and then I'll um, make the sculpture later. And he did. It was called um, uh, Blue Nude 2. <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. It was called Reclining Nude 1. <laughs> blue Nude 2 is actually when later he, when he was doing um, cutouts, mm-hmm. he did a Blue Nude 2 and he was like, and now better than ever, Blue Nude 2. So um, he later finished the sculpture, which is entitled Reclining Nude 1. And Matisse shocked the French public at the 1907 Société des, Ar- des Artistes Independents where he exhibited Blue Nude, uh, and it was one of the paintings that would later create an international sensation at the Armory Show, as I mentioned previously. But what, what's so crazy about this painting, So Lauren? let me tell you. So imagine a jungle scene. Okay. Lots of dark greens, beautiful greens. There's a grassy surface, like right in the foreground. Mid and foreground is a grassy surface. And on that, taking up the almost the entirety of the painting space, is a female question mark body with two big bolted on boobs, big round boobs, um, lying odalisque style mm-hmm. with one arm propped behind one's head mm-hmm. and the other arm above, like mm-hmm. you're stretching, and then one leg thrown over the other. Okay. So you see like the curve of the waist and then the curve of the mm-hmm. butt. And the skin of this person is blue it's very bright blue and the haircut and the face seem very masculine okay but the breasts and the torso are very feminine in like a weird way Mm -hmm. because the boobs are just like like bolted on like fake boobs are and the waist looks feminine but the genitals are covered by the leg okay and the leg which is probably the biggest part of the body when you look at the whole thing is a penis like the (laughs) and i'm not making this up this is something that all art historians who are like oh yeah blue nude penis 100 percent. it's the thigh and then the curve of the top near the butt looks like the head and partial shaft is it just a a joke no (laughs) i mean it may have been who knows but it was and i think that was part of it where they were like, that's a penis. But I think the other thing was what actually shocked people was the fact that one, you couldn't actually tell what gender, Mm -hmm. what sex the nude was. And that made people very uncomfortable. Um, Another, you could not tell what race the person was. And the idea of otherness during this time where it was like white people are white people and any everyone else is the other. And the other was treated a very different way in art at the time. Mm-hmm. They were highly sexualized and all of this stuff. Right. So by creating a character that is blue, and granted, at the time, no one was making, 
rendering figures in anything other than skin colors. So the fact that he was using these bright, crazy colors was already kind of weird. But the fact that you couldn't identify where you were supposed to like arrange this person in your mind um, really like freaked some people out. So that's why people were like, it's obscene. Burn it in effigy. Um, Which I don't understand why that would. So it was like at an art show and people were like, that's it. (laughs) That's it. We're going to make one. Hold on me. Let me grab some tape. I'm going to make this thing and then I'm going to burn it. Just you watch. Yeah, they didn't. um, As far as I can tell, they didn't like try to destroy it, which is usually like the first step. Mm -hmm. But they were just like, we don't like it. And we're going to show you how much we don't like it. Take it down. But they didn't. Um, And he had a lot of support with the Steins and in Paris and things like that. So he was like, man, whatever. Who cares about Chicago? But no one was really buying his art, especially in like the international art market. But um, in April 1906, he met Pablo Picasso. Mm-hmm. So they became good friends. Picasso was 11 years younger than Matisse, and they became lifelong friends as well as rivals and are often compared um, in the grand historical, you know, concept. Uh, one key difference between them is that Matisse drew and painted from nature, while Picasso was more inclined to work from imagination. And the subjects painted most frequently by both artists were women and still lifes, with Matisse more likely to place his figures in fully realized interiors, while Picasso was just kind of like, especially a lot of his early nudes and like figures were just kind of looked like they were in this weird desert, just like brown ground and blue sky and just focus on this boy with a horse. Just shut up and watch the boy. Um, <laughs> so Matisse and more on that in my next Shut episode Shut up and watch this boy <laughs> Shut up and watch this nude boy <laughs> It's not weird The Pablo Picasso story the bo- <laughs> That's going to be my biopic that I make um, So Matisse and Picasso were first brought together At the Paris Salon of Gertrude Stein With her companion Alice B. Toklas uh, during the first decade of the 20th century, the Americans in Paris, Gertrude, her brother, her brothers, Leo, Michael, and Michael's wife, Sarah, uh, were important collectors and supporters of Matisse's paintings. And in addition, Gertrude Stein's two American friends from Baltimore, the Cohn sisters, Clarabelle and Etta Cohn, became major patrons of Matisse and Picasso, collecting hundreds of their paintings and drawings. And the Cohn collection is now exhibited in the Baltimore Museum of Art, hmm. which is a very large and um, extensive and high quality collection of early 20th century art. Good luck not getting your car broken too. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You're going to have to like go there in a tank. We love Baltimore. No, we don't. Um, Matisse's wife, Amelie, who suspected he was having an affair with her young Russian emigre companion, Lydia Delektorskaya, ended their 41 year marriage in July, 1939, dividing their possessions equally between them. Uh, they had been having problems for years, though, since Matisse painted Portrait of Madame Matisse or The Green Stripe. This was a big deal. So both admirers and critics of Matisse have characterized The Green Stripe as a disturbing image. A friend of the painting's owner, Michael and Sarah Stein, called it, quote, a demented caricature of a portrait. And in 1910, the critic Gellert Burgess wrote that the green stripe was Matisse's punishment of Amelie that compelled the viewer to see her in a strange and terrible aspect. So when you look at it, you're like, I don't get it. It's Mm -hmm. just a picture of a lady's face. But one of Matisse's main things was, um, you know, all throughout art history, you would use when you'd want to show color. uh, I mean, if you want to show shadow, you just add more black to that color and then there's the shadow Mm -hmm. on the other side of the tree or whatever. Mm -hmm. If you watch any Bob Ross like I do, you add white to it to make the highlights and you add black to it to make the shadow and that's how you make something look, you know, three-dimensional and like where the light is in space and all that stuff. Well, he didn't want to do that. He didn't like using black ever. So he would use color in seemingly random ways to kind of make, render an object three-dimensional or show where the light is coming from. And the fact that your eye would naturally read it as, oh yeah, that's the dark side when it's just yellow and green okay, or yellow and orange or, you know, blue and purple or Mm -hmm. whatever. He would some, like somehow your brain would still organize it in a way that was identifiable as a human figure. And that's why people were so struck by it. And that's why he was so influential by using color in a very new and weird and wild way that no one else was doing. So the fact is, the picture of the portrait of Madame Matisse is just her face. 
She's got her hair up in a bun. She has no expression on her face. She just has like a bland look. She's looking directly at the viewer. And there is light coming from one side of her face, which is yellow. And then on the other side of her face where the shadow is, is like, um, I think it's purple or something like that. But what people were really pissed off about is that the line down the middle of her face was green. It was like, the, it was just the shift of light mm-hmm. and color and people lost their minds. They were like, how dare he? I cannot believe it. A green stripe on her face. She's been trying to cover up her witchy undertones for years. <laughs> for years. Seriously, witchy undertones, 100%. I will post a picture of the green stripe. But that was his punishment to her for, I guess, making his life miserable. I don't know, for supporting him for his entire career. For staying married to him for 41 years while he was sleeping with a little Russian. Russian so-and-so. Yeah, well, she gets hers. You'll see. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's very strange. Uh, but it's a very influential piece of artwork. So just goes to show, don't Is date Is it called artists. The Green Stripe? It's called uh, Portrait of Madame Matisse or The Green Stripe. Okay. So someone else later called it that. Yeah, okay. someone else, you know, it was it colloquially known mm-hmm. as The Green Stripe. And so it's The Green Stripe. Um, so uh, Lydia Delektorskaya, poor thing. She attempted suicide by shooting herself in the chest. Uh, Remarkably, she survived with no serious after effects and instead returned to Matisse and worked with him for the rest of his life, running his household, paying the bills, typing his correspondence, keeping meticulous records, assisting in the studio, and coordinating his business affairs. She shot herself in the chest and then bounced up and was like, let me do your bookkeeping, bro. I'm in it and I'm good at it. So... The war happens. Here comes the war. Matisse was visiting Paris uh, when the Nazis invaded France in June 1940. Uh, He managed to make his way back to Nice, however. His son Pierre, by then a gallery owner in New York, begged him to flee when he could. But Matisse was about to embark for Brazil to escape the occupation. And then he changed his mind and remained in Nice, in Vichy. He said, it seemed to me as if I would be deserting. Uh, He wrote to Pierre in September of 1940. Quote, if everyone who has... has any value leaves France, what remains of France? Which is a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, although he was never a member of the resistance, it became a point of pride to the occupied French that one of their most acclaimed artists chose to stay. Though, of course, being non-Jewish, he had that option. Oh, right. So while the Nazis occupied France from 40 to 44, they were more lenient in their attacks on degenerate art in Paris than they were in the German-speaking nations under their military dictatorship. Um as you know, the uh, degenerate art was most of like the modernists, cubists. They thought it was disgusting. They destroyed a lot of it. Um, and they destroyed a lot of Jewish artists, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but Matisse was allowed to exhibit along with other former foves and cubists whom Hitler had initially claimed to despise, though without any Jewish artists, all of whose works had been purged from all French museums and galleries. Uh, any French artists exhibiting in France had to sign an oath assuring their Aryan status, including Matisse. jeez. Uh, yeah. So in 1941, Matisse was diagnosed with duodenal cancer. Oof. Yeah. Cancer of the duodenum. That's that That's that low end of the gully works. So <laughs> again, a technical term. So the surgery, which was successful, resulted in serious complications from which he nearly died. Uh, being bedridden for three months resulted in his developing a new art form using paper and scissors. More on that in a bit. So that same year, a nursing student named Monique Bourgeois responded to an ad placed by Matisse for a nurse. A platonic friendship developed between Matisse and Bourgeois. He discovered that she was an amateur artist and taught her all about perspective. After Bourgeois left the position to join a convent in 1944, yes, <laughs> yeah, she joined a convent. She was like, you know what, this guy, eh. you know, bride of Christ, here I go. <laughs> Uh, Matisse sometimes contacted her. Her name was now Sister Jacques Marie to request that she model for him. And she would. She was good mm-hmm. friends with him. I don't know. Uh, no word on whether she modeled it with him, for him in the full like habit. habit. Mm-hmm. Um, Bourgeois became a Dominican nun in 1946. And Matisse painted a chapel in Vannes, a small town he moved to in 1943 in her honor in 1948. Um, she collaborated with him on the project, a story related in her 1992 book, Henri Matisse, La Chapelle de Vence, and in the 2003 documentary, A Model for Matisse, which apparently you can see. 
Uh, Matisse remained for the most part isolated in southern France throughout the war, but his family was intimately involved with the French resistance. His son, Pierre, the art dealer in New York, helped the Jewish and anti-Nazi French artists he represented to escape occupied France and enter the United States. In 1942, he held an exhibit in New York called Artists in Exile, which was to become legendary. Matisse's estranged wife, Amélie, was a typist for the French underground and was jailed for six months. Uh, Matisse was shocked when he first heard that his daughter, Marguerite, who had been active in the resistance during the war, was tortured almost to death by the Gestapo in a Wren prison and sentenced to the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. Yeah. Marguerite managed to escape from the train to Ravensbrück, which was halted during an Allied air raid. And she survived in the woods in the chaos of the closing days of the war until rescued by fellow resistors. This woman was a royal badass. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, Matisse's, uh, one of Matisse's students, Rod- Rudolf Levy, was killed in the Auschwitz concentration camp in 1944. So he knew a lot of people who were affected wow. by mm-hmm. the war. Um, so then he was diagnosed with abdominal cancer in 1941. This guy cannot oh, get a break. He underwent surgery that left him chair and bed bound. Uh, painting and sculpture had become physical challenges, so he turned to a new type of medium. So with the help of his assistants, he began creating cut paper collages or decoupage. He would cut sheets of paper pre-painted with gouache by his assistants into shapes of varying colors and sizes and arrange them to form lively compositions. Initially, these pieces were modest in size, but eventually transformed into murals or room-sized works. The result was a distinct and dimensional complexity, an art form that was not quite painting, but not quite sculpture. Hmm. Although the paper cutouts was Matisse's major medium in the final decade of his life, his first recorded use of the technique was in 1919 during the design of decor for the Les Chantes du Rossignol, an opera composed by Igor Stravinsky. Uh, He did all of the costumes for it. Wow. Um, so another group of cutouts was made between 1937 and 1938 while Matisse was working on the stage sets and costumes for Sergei Dilegev's Ballet Russe. And after he moved to the hilltop of Vence in 1943, he produced his first major cutout project for his artist's book titled Jazz. <laughs> Uh, yep, just Aww, jazz. I wasn't expecting no, that. Yeah, he loved jazz, apparently. Uh, at this point, Matisse still thought of the cutouts as separate from his principal art form, um, and the number of independently conceived cutouts steadily increased following jazz. He was like, I like these, and eventually led to the creation of mural-sized works, such as Oceania the Sky and Oceania the Sea of 1946. And under Matisse's direction, Lydia Delectorskaya, his studio assistant, loosely pinned the silhouettes of birds, fish, and marine vegetation directly onto the walls of the room. The two Oceania pieces, his first cutouts of the scale, evoked a trip to Tahiti he made years before. Um, he finished his last painting in 1951 and final sculpture the year before. Uh, Matisse utilized the paper cutouts as his sole medium for expression up until his death. So in 1952, he established a museum dedicated to his work, which was known as the Matisse Museum in Les Coteaux. And the museum is now the third largest collection of Matisse works in France. Matisse died of a heart attack at the age of 84. After all that. I know. He died on November 3rd, 1954, and he is interred in the cemetery of the Monastère Notre-Dame de Simillet near Nice. So his most famous works are Women with a Hat, The Joy of Life, The Joie de Vivre, uh, Nu Bleu, Blue Nude, La Danse, the one of all the people like the, the it's blue background and it's all these nudes and they're dancing in a circle. They're all joining hands and they got these long spindly arms and legs. It's very good. Uh, La Danse, uh, he did a big one and then he did a bunch of others and then he kept inserting La Danse in other paintings. <laughs> like um, the joy of life, the joie de vivre uh, is a later one that's kind of along the same lines as, um, what was it? Calm... Uh, Lux Calm Volupte. It's along those same lines. It's kind of like the older brother of Lux Calm Volupte. It's like his culmination of his artwork. And again, it's a lot of nudes and they're like reclining in the forest and they have like really bold, like colored outlines around them. Hmm. And again, it's like a lot of color. And then way in the back is a teeny weeny little la dance. Like all these people in a circle <laughs> just funny. dancing. It's very cute. So his cutouts are most famously seen in the Barnes collection mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. And but we can't, can we can we see them yet? So I don't know. <laughs> so the Barnes collection, okay. Long story short, the Barnes collection was is a private collection of a guy named Barnes, Alfred Barnes, 
Albert Barnes. Albert Barnes. Albert Barnes, who um, was a multimillionaire and a good friend of Matisse. And he actually um, had Matisse do a bunch of murals in his home. Like it was a big um, mansion in Philadelphia, just in like the outskirts of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And when he died, he had a very explicit will that was like, I want my mansion to become a museum and you can't touch anything and you can't sell anything. And then over the course of 60 years or so, the Philadelphia Museum of Art and some other people kind of chipped away at the will. And now in the Barnes collection has been reduced to like a, a plain white walled gallery on museum mile in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And the original mansion, I think it's still under the Barnes trust, but it's like offices or it's like offsite yeah. storage or something like that. And they, they sold off a bunch of paintings at one point and, I got to see it in C2, in the oh. Barnes collection, like a month before they moved it. Wow. Or started to move it mm-hmm. into Philadelphia proper. So I got to see the Matisse murals, which are like in these, they're huge on the wall and like in these recesses of the arcs in the in the main hall area. And they're like blue and green and they're really beautiful. And I don't know what they did with it. I mean, it's, it's a piece of artwork, but it's also a wall and it certainly wasn't anything. He painted it directly onto the wall. They Mm -hmm. couldn't like slice it off. So I'm not entirely sure what happened to that, but all of that artwork, all of these beautiful modernist pieces that were in this home that you could literally like walk up to are now just in a museum. Not that I have anything, not that there's anything wrong with the museum, but the Barnes collection was like a special kind of museum. There's a really good documentary about it. And yes. nor, usually Lauren's the one that tells you documentaries, but the art of the steel is all about yes. um, the Barnes Foundation. And you, if you are an art person or a cultural heritage person, you're going to get super mad oh my when God, you watch so it. So mad. I could only watch it once. That and um, The Rape of Europa, which is about yeah. the Nazis looting um, all of the cultural heritage institutions in Europe. Um, I could also only watch once because it is absolutely infuriating. But the Art of the Steel is a very good documentary, if only for the good use of information. And also it's just like very stylistically, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. They did a nice job with him. So uh, because I know you love my impeccable French accent, uh, I decided to do (laughs) a quiz on French movies. Okay. Uh, allons-y. Allons-y. Question number one. Is that it? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Question numéro un. Okay, thank you. The story of a shy waitress that took college boys by storm. The French film Amélie was nominated for five Academy Awards. What year did Amélie make its debut? Question number two. According to Quentin Tarantino, the title for one of his most famous films came from someone mishearing his suggestion of the film Au Revoir Les Enfants when he worked in a video store. What is the name of that Tarantino movie? Question number three. According to many cinephiles, The 400 Blows is one of the greatest pieces of French film ever made. Who was the director of The 400 Blows, who was regarded as the father of French New Wave, but no information exists on what he thought of Mushrooms? Question number four. Former magician George Méliès made one of the first silent films ever made in 1902, and its influence and imagery is still felt today, especially in the iconic scene of the face of our Luna being marred by a rocket ship to the eye. What is this movie? Question number five. La Vie en Rose, starring Marianne Cotillard as the main character, is the French biopic of what tragic early 20th century singer? Question number six. Hey, I had to watch it. Un Chien Andalou is a surrealist, eye-popping film in more ways than one by director Luis Bunel and what Spanish artist? Question number seven. A titan of French cinema, Gerard Depardieu, was nominated for an Academy Award in 1991 for portraying the eponymous character of what classic nosy play by Edmund Rostand? Question number eight. He's best known here for being a comic and the goofball counterpart to Dean Martin, but the French regard him as an auteur and genius of French cinema. Who is this comedian? Question number nine. Which French film inexplicably won Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director at the 2011 Academy Awards, despite the fact that only 11 words are spoken in the entire film and all of them in English? 
And finally, question number 10. La Cage à Fall is the original French source material for the 90s comedy The Birdcage, which starred two of the greatest American comedic art actors of their age. Name them. We'll give you a minute to think about it. I'll be right back with answers. Every time you started to say a sentence and then I was like, oh, okay, yeah, it's this thing. Then you would say that thing in the question and then I knew you weren't asking that part of the question anymore. <laughs> so this is not, this isn't going to be good for old No, Joel. you got it. Old Joel's I'm, got it. I'm not good at movies. It's everyone. okay. I'm not good at music or movies. Those are my... Yes, but you are so good with... Ah, uh, yes, it might just come, all come to me. Yeah. Okay. Question number one. The story of a shy waitress that took college boys by storm. The French film Amelie was nominated for five Academy Awards. What year did Amelie make its debut? 2001? Yes, exactly. Uh, exactement. Um, so, <laughs> isn't that French? Yeah. Okay, great. I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> so, I don't know about you, but I knew a lot of sensitive boys in college oh. who loved Amelie. Hmm. They loved it so much. Nope, I didn't know any sensitive boys. Oh, okay. I knew a lot of manic pixie dream boys who were really into Amelie. They were insufferable. Anyway. Uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet is a amazing director, and I love everything he's done. It's a, uh, honestly, aside from the sensitive boys, it's a fabulous movie. It's so beautiful, and it's so sweet. It's the best. Um, And Audrey Tutu is like, so with her little pursed lips. So cute. <laughs> She's 42 now. I was like Googling her. She looks amazing. Anyway, question number two. According to Quentin Tarantino, the title for one of his most famous films came from someone mishearing his suggestion of the film Au Revoir Les Enfants when he worked in a video store. What is the name of that Tarantino movie? Is it Inglorious Bastards? No, it's Reservoir Dogs. Ah, okay. He said, uh, oh, how about you should see Au Revoir Les Enfants. And they were like, did you say Reservoir Dogs? And he was like, what a great idea for a movie. And then he wrote down a bunch of things that he copied from other people. Um, I'm not a fan of Quentin Tarantino. Okay, question number three. According to many cinephiles, The 400 Blows is one of the greatest pieces of French film ever made. Who is the director of The 400 Blows, who was regarded as the father of French New Wave, but no information exists on what he thought of mushrooms? Okay, give me, give me three guesses. Okay, Ready? all right. Pierre Portobello. <laughs> Close. Charles Chanterelle. <laughs> oh my God, you are doing so well. All right. Okay, that's not it though. Bring, bring it home. Uh, hmm. I, I, I may have stretched the hint here a little bit. Oh. No, I don't know. It's Francois Truffaut. Ah, I was trying okay. to go for like a truffle thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the movie is about a little boy named Antoine Donnell, a boy who's basically just a normal rebellious preteen. I had to watch it in my film class in college. Um, it is best known for its freeze frame ending. Apparently, at the end of the movie, he's he like escapes from like this boy's like school, and he runs to the sea because he's never seen the sea before. And as he's running to the sea, he like looks over his shoulder, and then the the camera freezes, and then it zooms in on his face, and for some reason. That is like the most arresting thing that has ever been put to film by anyone French. <laughs> it's it's good, question mark. It's fine. It's fine. It's kind of an interesting way of doing it, I guess, because this was like the early 60s, mm-hmm. but whatever. Um, so the reason why it's called 400 Blows is because it's in reference to its French title, which is Les Quatre Saint Coups which refers to the French idiom uh, faire les quatre cents coups 
or to raise hell. Okay. So, uh, no one in who spoke English got that. <laughs> so they were like, okay, 400 <laughs> blows, I guess. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, so anyway, uh, so okay, like a qu- bad, weird translation, bad, bad, weird translation. Um, for sure. So question number four, former magician Georges Méliès made one of the first silent films ever made in 1902, and its influence and imagery is still felt today, especially in the iconic scene of the face of our Luna being marred by a rocket ship to the eye. What is this movie? You knew it was the moon with a rocket ship to the eye, but I don't know what it's called. It's called A Trip to the Moon. Yeah. Uh, The film's original print was rediscovered in 1993 and restored in 2011. And some of the scenes were replicated in the Smashing Pumpkins music video Tonight Tonight. (laughs) I just remembered that. That was just off the top of my head. (laughs) Okay. Question number five. La Vie en Rose starring Marianne Cotillard as the main character is the French biopic of what tragic early 20th century singer? Edith Piaf. It is Edith Piaf. Her nickname was the Little Sparrow, and she died at 47 in 1963. She is buried in the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. Thank you. Please lis- listen to Julia's um, Halloween-adjacent episode about uh, The Graveyard cemeteries. Shift. Yes, The Graveyard Shift. Question number six. Hey, I had to watch it. Un Chien Andalou is a surrealist, eye-popping film in more ways than one by director Louis Bunel and what Spanish artist? Is it the guy with this... What's he, the guy with the eyeballs? Nope. That's, um, no, this is old. Oh, I don't know. It's uh, Salvador Dali. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so Unshin Andalou opens with Louis Brunel and he is, uh, he grabs a lady and she is just sitting there and he opens up her eye and he drags a, um, uh, a razor blade across it Why? and, and ants Why? spill out of it. And it's ants, ants, ants. And then everyone was like, I don't know. All, all of Paris was like, yeah. Like, they just loved it. I don't understand. It's horrifying to watch. I had, I also had to watch that for my, um, for my class, for my film class. It was not her actual eye. It was a cow's eye, not a living cow, a dead cow, but they were real ants. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. I don't like any of this. I know. I'm sorry. Okay. It's almost done. <laughs> Number seven, a question, a titan of French cinema, Gerard Depardieu, was nominated for an Academy Award in 1991 for portraying the eponymous character of what classic nosy play by Edmond Rostand? Cyrano de Bergerac. Cyrano de Bergerac. Uh, he didn't win, but he did win a César Award for the same year. I, can I tell you, as a teen, was obsessed with Gerard Depardieu. Can I tell you, I was a super cool teen because I was obsessed with a mid-40s French actor. With the biggest nose. With the biggest nose and like the biggest eyes and just, just a big like meaty face. Like he always, like perpetually, like he just finished drinking a 12 pack of beer. Yes. Like just drunk, <laughs> just puffy and drunk is Gerard Depardieu. Um, he, I saw Cyrano de Bergerac probably six times just in my high school years. I was obsessed. His death scene takes 20 minutes. He gets stabbed and he's just like whispering and like moving from tree to tree as his love is following him. And she was like, no, Gerard. And he was like, no. And he's like uh, whispering. And then he would like collapse and she would like hold his face. And then he would get up again and then start walking again. It was at the time at 15. Oh my God. The most romantic thing I've ever seen. Again, I was a super cool teen who had a lot of friends. Okay. Question number eight. (laughs) He's best known here for being a comic and the goofball counterpart to Dean Martin, but the French regard him as an auteur and genius of French cinema. Who is this comedian? Jerry Lewis. It is Jerry Lewis. The French really appreciated his directing and filmmaking styles, apparently. Including the clown movie? Including the cl- the day the clown cried, I think? Yeah. I saw clips of it. Did I tell you about that? No. I think it was Vulture that was like, hey, it's on, you know, there's a German version of it that's just a bunch of clips of it. Like it's uh-huh. not the whole movie um, on YouTube. And they were like, here it is. And I sat at work one day and like watched it. It was like an hour. It was boring. And there's the part where he's like, hee hee, we're all taking you guys to the gas chamber. Like it's fucked up. Anyway, <laughs> Jerry Lewis, so Jerry really. Lewis, the French apparently loved his filmmaking styles. Plus they love to laugh, I guess. I don't know. Um, all, all Americans saw was Dr. Doolittle, but the French are like, Jerry. 
okay, question number nine. Which French film inexplicably won Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director at the 2011 Academy Awards, despite the fact that only 11 words were spoken in the entire film, and all of them in English? The Artist. The Artist, yes. It was Best Actor for Jean Dujardin, and Best Director for Michel Azanavichus. That is his name. Azanavichus. Uh, did you see The Artist? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was cute. I don't know if it was like best picture cute. Oh, well, you know, the, the Academy loves a throwback to old Hollywood. Oh, yeah, they love it. And that whole that whole Academy Awards, I remember sitting and watching it with Victoria, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just uh, an homage to old Hollywood, top to bottom, left to right. Just beautiful. Okay. Question number 10. La Cage à Fall is the original French source material for the 90s comedy The Birdcage, which starred two of the greatest American comedic actors of their age. Name them. Nathan Lane. Yes. Is the other one Robin Williams? It is. The other one is Robin Williams. Yes. I've seen that movie six times. So beautiful. I believe it. So funny. So cute. Love it all. See, you did fine. It's fine. Just because you know all Shinandalu doesn't mean that, you know, you're not good at movies, Julia very bad at movies you're i'm as good at movies as you are with your french accent <laughs> wow wow i am your italian is wonderful cut to the i quick. think maybe you speak french with an italian accent i do i think that's it because i my co-worker um almudena yeah. is spanish and she says i speak spanish with an italian accent yeah i <laughs> when i would try to help people in college like study for spanish stuff i would they they would kick me out because I yeah. was speaking Spanish with a French accent. It yeah. wasn't helpful. I really want my French to be bouncier and more covered in marinara, I guess, is is what it comes down to. Are you just hungry? Maybe I'm hungry. <laughs> oh, I can go for some pasta vajol right now. Anyway. Well, thank you for part toi. Part toi. Um, my fourth and final spoiler alert is going to be about Picasso, um, which will also... <laughs> Spoiler, spoiler alert. We'll have a lot of French in it, but also some Spanish. So we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see what I do. Um, But yeah, thanks. It was fun. (laughs) Uh, If you want to see some of the pictures from this episode, Lauren will post them to our Twitter. That's um, at Miss Infopod. It's okay. Uh, we have a Facebook page, Misinformation, colon, a trivia podcast. Uh, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. Um, we have a website, www.misinfopod.com. Yeah. That's yeah, it. Those are all. Yeah. And uh, if you want to uh, continue to listen to us or if you want to tell a friend and tell them where you can where they can listen to us, um, you can stream us on our aforementioned website, www.misinfopod.com. Uh, you can get us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, um, Google Play, Stitcher, and use our RSS feed for any podcast app that you prefer. And thank you, guys. We I just recently like was looking at iTunes and saw how many more like comments and yes. ratings there were, and it was really sweet. Everyone we is really so appreciate nice. All of your all of your kind words, yes. and um, it's nice to hear that that people that aren't our friends are listening to this. I know. I don't think I'll ever get used to that, that people who aren't our friends, unless, again, it's just you doing this to give Steve a break every couple of weeks. <laughs> but either way, I'm, I choose to ignore that, that there are plenty of strangers all around the world who listen to my voice every Tuesday. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.